When warm weather found its way back to Southern California, my brothers and I, we would practically live in our backyard swimming pool, and we'd practice our cannonballs out there. We'd see who could hold their breath the longest and play all sorts of different pool games. One game stood out from all the rest. We loved this game. We called it, are you ready for this? Mind your manners, mateys. And here's how I worked. There was, a, there was a seat underwater about midway in the pool, and one person would stand up on that seat while the others tried to, to splash and tug and pull and knock him off of that so that they could stand up and take their turn. It, basically king of the hill. With one crucial innovation that we introduced, that when you would defend your territory, you push each other down, you would say, Mind your manners, mateys. And it, was, it must have looked ridiculous to anyone who was watching it. And you'll be happy to know that I don't play that game anymore, at least as far as you're concerned. And yet, the older I get, the more I've come to realize that everyone's playing that game. They're all playing that game. We're all playing it, just in, in different ways and at different times and to different degrees. Everyone has got their own version of it. They're fighting for number one. They're trying to regain something that they feel like they're losing. Everybody wants to rule the world, to defend their honor, to keep from getting pushed down or maybe, maybe just ignored. Jesus talked about gaining the world. It can be done. According to Jesus, it can be done, but not the way that so many of us would think. Rather than pushing each other down and propping ourselves up, it actually is accomplished by becoming something that's rather odd. And what's even more strange is the path to becoming that odd thing. It's not found in, in digging deeper or trying harder, or developing some type of specialized skill. But you become that by simply seeing God for who He is. Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 5? We're in Matthew this morning. Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to focus in on Matthew 5, 5, but I'd like for us to read from verses one to 16. If you're able, would you stand with me as we read from God's Word this morning? Things change, but the Word of God remains the same. It says this in Matthew 5, verse 1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, 
for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Did you catch it? Did you catch verse 5? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek are the ones who are going to inherit the earth. They're the ones who are going to end up on top. And someone might say, wow, I didn't see that coming. Exactly. Exactly. It's the opposite of what we might think. It's contrary to, to the way that we see the world work. To get ahead, to, to rise to the top, to avoid getting passed over or stepped on, well, you've got to step on others. It's the meek that gets squashed, Right? A lot of people really don't like that word, meekness. It just sounds too much like weakness. A journalist in the 1800s wrote, It's going to be fun to watch and see how long the meek can keep the earth once they inherit it. I don't think meekness is one of those things that people often pray for. And yet meekness is supposed to be one of the defining characteristics of Jesus' disciples. And one of the reasons for that, that it's so important, is not just because of what it says about us. It's because of what it says about God. You see, if I believe and have a a fundamental and correct understanding of who God is, and, and I have a living faith in him, then meekness is something that is going to start developing automatically inside of me. The two actually go hand in hand. Meekness is something that should come about naturally. Because I know God, I am becoming meek. It's kind of the same way as as eating tacos makes you happy, right? You walk around and you see someone with a smile on their face and you say, that person must have had tacos for lunch. Was it chicken? Was it shrimp? Was it carne asada? I don't know. It doesn't really matter. Tacos and happy just go hand in hand. They go together, right? And we might think that meekness is is a personality trait or it's some type of natural disposition, but true meekness, true meekness is something that the Holy Spirit develops in our lives as we bask in the light of of who God is. It's amazing. And the beautiful thing is this. As we demonstrate the quality of meekness in our lives, those we come in contact with, they will learn something 
about God from it. That's what verse 16 of of this chapter in Matthew tells us. Jesus said, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So as people see that light coming forth from your lives, as they see the effects of knowing God shining brightly, God is the one who gets the attention. The meekness that Jesus encourages in the Sermon on the Mount, that leads others to give glory to God. It gives evidence to the fact that God has made a difference in your life. Why? It's because meekness has more to do with our understanding of God than who we are. And my friends, that's essential. If we're going to point others to God during this extremely difficult season in the history of our world, then meekness needs to be one of the things that they see in us. More than persuasive arguments, more than aggressive behavior, more than lectures and guilt trips or posts on social media, they need to see the difference that God has made in the lives of His people as they demonstrate meekness. Okay, so what is meekness? What does it look like? And how does my understanding of God create it in me? The Bible answers those questions for us. We find several of them in Psalm chapter 37, verses 5 through 11. Let me just read these to you. It says, Commit your way to the Lord. Trust Him, and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The first thing we notice as we look at this passage carefully is that verse 9 and verses 10 and 11 parallel each other. Not only will the meek inherit the land, but it's those who will wait for the Lord as well. So right off the bat, we know that there's a direct connection between these verses that those who wait for the Lord and those who are meek, they are actually one and the same. And what these people look like is described in the verses preceding, verses 5 to 8. Check it out. Those who are meek are those who trust God. Verse 5 said, "Commit your way to the Lord." Trust in Him, and He will act. You see, the meek, they believe that God is all-powerful, that He's all-knowing, and that He's always available. They're confident that God cares for them, and that He acts for good and for His glory. So when I look at my life in light of who God is, I see this loving Creator who loved me so much that He sent Jesus Christ to die for me. And if I can trust Him to save me from my sin, shouldn't I be able to trust Him for anything else that comes my way? 
When an unbelieving world observes God's people practicing meekness, they discover a people that actually believe. We actually believe that God is trustworthy. The meek trust God. They also do this. They also commit their way to God. Look at verse 5 again. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. Because they trust, the meek They let go of their anxiety and trust those difficult things in life to God. They come to Him in prayer. They cast their cares on Him because they know that He cares for them. When I used to drop my oldest daughter off at preschool several years ago, she would always always come to preschool with her arms full of stuff. She would have her her blanket and her stuffed animals and and sometimes a purse and all these different things. And we'd come up to the preschool door, and it was glass, and she could see in, and she would know it's time to say goodbye. And just before we said goodbye, she'd start handing all of these precious things to me. And I'd be trying to wrangle all of this and give her a hug at the same time. And then she would go on into her class. She knew that she can entrust those special things to me, that I would look after them. I was going to keep them safe, and they were going to be there for her when she got out of school. And that's what our trust in God it allows us to do. We're able to commit our way to Him, to entrust Him with it, to rely on Him to protect it and preserve it, because we know that He's able, and we know that He's good. Later on in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus would remind His disciples, this is Matthew 6.25, Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or what you will will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Look at the birds of the air. Your heavenly Father feeds them. He goes on to say this. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. He knows that you need them all. He's not some impersonal being without feelings or, without, uh, or, or who just acts randomly, divvying whatever out to whoever. No, he's a loving father that you and I can rely on. Meek people, they have so much trust in God that they commit. The Hebrews, it literally says they roll it. I just think of bowling. They roll it. All of their cares, all of their anxieties, all of the problems in life, they've rolled it to God, whom they can rely on. Are there cares in your life that you need to roll to God? Are there financial cares, maybe health-related cares? Maybe there's a relationship in need of repair. Maybe you're just weighed down by all the pain and all the suffering and all the confusion and all the anger that's going on in our world right now. Are you weighed down? I'm weighed down. When I look at my life in light of who God is, I see that He's far more capable of caring for my needs and concerns than even I am. I want to have control. I try to grab, grab up control, but I can't do it. I am constantly frustrated because it spins out of control. And yet, God isn't like that. Like David standing before Goliath, I need to rely on God's strength, on His wisdom, on His provision, not my own. I need to roll it to Him. 
The meek, they trust in God. They commit their way to Him. They also do something we don't like to do. They wait. Those who are meek wait patiently for God. Psalm 37, 7 says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. They know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, right? They know that God's timing doesn't always match up with their timing and what they would like it to be. And they also know His timing is the perfect timing. And they have confidence in God, such confidence in God that they're willing to say, Lord, okay, your time, that's what I want, not mine. It's hard to wait. So hard to wait. Some of us are waiting for maybe a new job. Maybe you're waiting for someone to share your life with or to buy a house or maybe just move out of your parents' house. Maybe it's to graduate from school or maybe it's to get through your last chemo treatment or get over a recent grief. Maybe you're waiting for a change in politics. Maybe Maybe you're waiting for all these COVID restrictions to just go away or for all the unrest and the suffering that we see in our world to just vaporize. Are you waiting? It could be so hard. But if we have real trust in God, then we know that God isn't leaving us waiting without reason. Why is God allowing us to wait? Well, maybe it's because He knows that He's developing some type of character quality in us that's going to be helpful to us in the years ahead. Or maybe it's going to allow us to help someone else through a difficult time. Or maybe it's because in His grand plan, He has other things that He wants to see happen. And our stuff is secondary. Or maybe it's because that He gets more glory when the transformational work of Jesus Christ that He has done in our lives, that gets put on display as His people endure tough times. And they continue to remain faithful and obedient and even full of joy and praise. A good cup of coffee takes time to brew, doesn't it? You don't want that that water to to slip through uh, those grounds too fast because then you've got weak, tasteless coffee. You want it to go through at the right rate so that it soaks in all of those rich grounds. I don't like to wait for coffee to brew, and yet it's worth the wait because that's how it's made. Do you remember Caleb? We talked about him back in February. Caleb had to wait 45 years for God to deliver on his promise. 45 years! That's a long time. Meek people are willing to wait because they know the God that they serve. They know him. They know that he's faithful. They know that whatever he has planned and, and, and when it's going to happen, that that is what's best. You see, when I look at my life in light of who God is, I realize that his timing is just better. Looking back, if I would have gotten so many of the things that I wanted when I wanted them, it would have been disastrous. His timing's perfect. The meek. They fully believe, verse 11 here, Psalm 37, 11, they believe that they shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant 
peace. But they know that that's going to happen in God's time. The meek, they trust, they commit, they wait. And here's one that you may not have expected. Those who are meek don't worry about the success of unbelievers. Have you ever been frustrated at the realization that you've been working hard, you've been coloring in the lines, you've been trying to live life the way that God wants you to live it, only to look out there and see the people that don't want to have anything to do with God, and they're the ones who are prospering. They're the ones with the fancy cars and the nice houses, and they're seemingly having it all. It's frustrating. People who are meek, they know that God is infinitely bigger than all the concerns of their life. They trust that He's good. They, they know that they can hand over and entrust their needs to Him, and that He's going to deliver on His promises in His time, and that God will deal with those who use the end to justify their devious means. God's going to deal with them. We don't have to worry about them. Psalm 37, 8 says, Refrain from anger, forsake wrath, fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, probably that beautiful, majestic place on the hill, but he won't be there. So they don't panic. They're not rash. They don't get angry or fall into depression when they see ungodly people driving all the nice stuff or having the nice clothes or experiencing success in life. Neither do they take their convictions and push them to the side. Just, just slightly kind of get, find a workaround so that I can embrace some of the tactics of the people I see successful out there and try to get ahead in life, because that's really how, I guess, you got to do it. No, they hold fast to their convictions. Because they trust that God is a God of justice, they know that it's just a matter of time before God brings justice. Do you get frustrated when you look around and you see so many other people getting ahead when they could care less about who God is. See, when I see my life in light of who God is, I'm confronted with the fact that my sense of justice is actually tainted by my own sin. Because I'm made in the image of God, just like all of us in this room and outside and online, we're all made in the image of God, and that gives us an internal and innate sense of justice. We want it. We need it. But that justice, that sense of justice, it's been affected by our sin, right? It's been tainted. It's been twisted. I want justice, and I want it now. I don't want it in God's timing. I want it in my timing. And I don't want it His way. I want it in my way. And so very often it leads me to jealousy and to anger and even discouragement. You see, I need to leave my frustration for the success of unbelievers, I need to leave that to God, who always judges fairly. The meek, they trust, they commit, they wait, they refuse to worry about others, and all of this has to do with their understanding of who God is and their faith in Him. The Bible actually has a little bit more to say about meekness. Are you ready for it? 
we have to go to Numbers chapter 12, and we have to look at Moses. It says this in Numbers chapter 12, verse 1, Miriam and Aaron, Moses' brother and sister, sister and brother, they spoke against Moses because, the, because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three. You just picture a mother. Come out. All right. Time's up. Get out here. Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. Moses' brother and sister, they call into question his leadership after he gets married again. Presumably, this is after Zipporah, his first wife, had passed away, and now he remarried, and they don't like it. Moses, what were you thinking? And God hears it. And he calls them to the tent of meeting. And at that tent of meeting, he reprimands Miriam and Aaron, and he defends Moses. Why? Well, the text points out the fact that Moses was a very meek man. Moses was a man who more than anyone else alive relied on God for his defense. That's the fifth fifth aspect here. Those who are meek, they look to God for their defense and justice. Meekness means trusting that God will fight on your behalf. You see, Moses, we don't see him getting bitter here. We don't getting, see him getting upset or rising against his brother or sister. He doesn't snap back to defend himself. Instead, he trusts. He waits. And then God speaks on his behalf. I like what one pastor said. Meekness is the power to absorb adversity and criticism without lashing back. So when accusations come our way, we're to absorb them. Not like a trampoline absorbs, right? Because a trampoline will take it, they'll take the pressure, and then it snaps right back, launching it right back in the other direction. We're not to absorb like a trampoline. We're to absorb more like a well-groomed horseshoe pit. Have you ever thrown horseshoes? If you have, you know that it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing when that, that ground right around the stake there uh, is nice and soft. The sand is well-maintained, it's well-groomed, so that when that shoe falls, it just falls and lands in place and sticks there. It's one of the most frustrating things in the world when you throw a horseshoe and it starts bouncing all over the place. You're like, oh my gosh, that was a good throw, but didn't absorb properly. That's the way we are to absorb. See, seeing my life in light of who God is, that tells me that he's the one I need to look to for my defense, for my vindication. We talked about that last week, didn't we? We looked at Joseph. We looked at how his brothers responded to the victimization they experienced. And then we looked a little bit at what, how Joseph responded as well. Paul said in Romans 12, 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. One of the frustrating and difficult parts about being in a church is that it's not a question of if, it's, it's a question of when. When is someone going to hurt you? 
because we get so close together. We're doing life together, and we're trying to encourage one another. We're getting up in each other's business sometimes, and we're rubbing each other the wrong way. And God uses that rub, and He uses that friction to refine us, iron sharpening iron, right? But very often, hurt happens, and we rub each other the wrong way, and we say the wrong thing. We push someone to the side. We exert ourselves, our power, whatever it may be. We hurt each other. It happens. If it hasn't happened to you yet, it's going to. But I bet, I bet it's happened to you already. And maybe it's come from me. And if it has come from me, I sure hope it was unintentional. But if it was intentional, I pray that the Holy Spirit convicts and leads me to repentance. And the same for you as well. We hurt each other. It's not fun. When you're hurt, remember that God is your defender. Jesus tells us how to approach someone who has offended us in Matthew 18, and that is good. But ultimately, we need to trust God who's going to go before us. We don't need to take up our swords and defend our honor. He does that. We don't need to lash back in fury. We don't need to start yelling. We don't need to spread our grievances online. We don't need to return insult for insult or evil for evil. I love what Moses told the people as they were beginning to panic, as those Egyptian chariots were bearing down in on them and pressing them into the sea. Moses says this in Exodus 14, 13. Fear not, Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Those who are meek, they look to God for their defense. They look to God for justice, and finally... Those who are meek, they value what is true over being right. James 1, 19-21 says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. One of the hardest things in life is admitting that I'm wrong. It's because I think too highly of myself, and I don't think enough of God. I enjoy the feeling when I'm right. Do you enjoy that? Sure you do. I want others to look at me. I want them to rely on me. I want them to think highly of me. And really, that's just pride rather than being honest with myself and recognizing that I'm a flawed and very limited person who has much to learn, I pretend that I'm a little bit too much like God. And when someone challenges me and they correct me and they accuse me, I'm so quick to fight back. I want to defend my honor. And it's not so much about what is right, it's about me being right. But when I see my life in light of who God is, 
I'm reminded of my place. I'm reminded that my, that my life is all about His. It's not meant to point others to how great that I am. It's meant to point others to how great God is. As I consider who God is, that He's the only one who is perfect, holy, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, and that His sacrifice is really the only one that's worthy of praise. I make sacrifices, and I want people to know, and I want them to know, hey, I sacrifice for you. It doesn't compare to the sacrifice that Christ made. And when I think of that, I realize that my life needs to be all about pointing others to Him, not to me. And so times when I'm corrected, and I need to stop and consider whether that correction is valid. It's not that I'm going to let people walk all over me or everything that I hold to be true. I reason with them. I defend what is true. But I need to always be remembering that the most important thing is not to prove myself right. It's to embrace and uphold what is right. I need to be willing to receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Meekness. It means trusting. It means committing. It means waiting. It means refusing to give in to worry, to look to God for justice, to seek truth. In the late 1800s, there was a bright philosopher who made a very significant discovery or determination, and that is that God is dead. And nothing really matters. And he said, the humanity's only real hope here, because there's no real value in anything. Humanity's only real hope is that there rises some type of, of superhuman that says, this is what you need to value, and he makes up his own rules, and he exercises his will to power. And that is what is going to give humanity meaning. He dreamed of the ultimate me-centered, king-of-the-hill type of human being. And his name was Frederick Wilhelm Nietzsche. And his philosophy was the driving force behind Nazism's rise in Germany and the attempted eradication of the unfit individuals in Adolf Hitler's concentration camps. Everybody wants to rule the world. So they claw and they fight, and they push their way up, thinking that they'll one day make it to the top. But Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness is a characteristic that God develops in us, not as I try harder, i got to be meek today, but as I consider my life in light of who He is. Those who are meek trust God. They commit their way to Him. They wait patiently for Him. They don't worry about the success of unbelievers. They look to God for their defense and justice. And they value what is true over being right. Let's be people who see our lives in light of who God is. And allow Him to shape us into people who are meek.